What's up, guys? Welcome back to episode nine. We are finally past the two-month mark, so. (laughs) Yep, we're on a roll. (laughs) We're still going, guys. (laughs) Um, Thanks for sticking around. Right? So don't forget to check out our podcast last week if you didn't listen to us. We talked, Megan talked about um, an exorcism, and I talked about a gross, pervy murderer, so. Fun times. Demons and degenerates. (laughs) (laughs) I like that episode name a lot. Yeah, it was a good one. Megan came up with it. Props to you. Maybe that's why I like it so much. Yeah. (laughs) So what's new with you, Megan? Well... I'm just put an offer in on a house, so that's what I've been doing during quarantine, in case anyone's wondering. Exciting times. <laughs> yep, so waiting to hear back on that. Yes. What about you? What's new? You know, just working and also been doing some painting, painting my house still, so doing oh, yeah. it in like I sections. You, yeah, you upgraded um, like one of your chandeliers right painted that oh over yeah. all that gold black that looked really good yeah so like pretty much everything in my house was like the old like gold fixture colors like the bathroom like vanity was like those like hollywood vanity lights that were like gold with like all the bulbs oh yeah and they're just kind of like super outdated so i wanted to replace them but you know i'm trying to like find ways to save money on house upgrades so I decided to um I actually took them down sanded them and then just spray painted them like a flat black and they look like super new and they look like more of like the modern farmhouse look like lights so they look really cool and then I also did that with a chandelier thing in our front hallway um again it was like that like gold color finish so I just like took it all apart and spray painted it um black and it looks really cool now so yeah sometimes all you need is a like fresh little coat of paint to change up the look I know now I want to like spray paint all our doorknobs but I don't know if I should do that <laughs> I'd, I'd maybe say hold off on that yeah I think I'd just have to like actually replace them because I don't know how well the spray paint on a doorknob would hold up yeah I might start chipping off and then you'll end up with paint all over your hands all the time yeah trashy looking doorknobs <laughs> so yeah guys that's what's new in our lives just house things yeah <laughs> trying to house things. trying to adult here yeah it's a real fun time yeah so this week megan is gonna tell us a fun story well maybe not so fun who knows <laughs> but um yeah so megan go ahead and take it away i'm excited to hear what you got yeah so this week i decided to Pull some inspiration from my quarantine activities, which has involved a lot of Netflix and specifically Criminal Minds. Have you ever watched that show? I haven't, but I'm definitely, I've been watching Supernatural. I've been binging that because so, I never watched it when I was younger. And like, I was looking for a show to binge that had a ton of seasons while I worked. And that oh, show has girl. 14 seasons. How many does Criminal Minds have? <laughs> it has 12. Okay, so another bingeable show. Yeah, the only thing is some of the topics can be a little heavy 
right on this show just because it's a lot of murder mm-hmm. a lot of death a lot of stuff like that so i can only watch like a few at a time and then i take a break and watch something funny for a while like, yeah throw on the office uh but this show it's for anyone who hasn't watched it or heard of it it's about a team of fbi agents called the behavioral analysis unit and they like go around the country solving different like serial murders or weird cases, disappearances, child abductions. And they basically use the killer's methods to create a profile to try to kind of like determine what kind of person they are, determine what they might do next. Okay. And catch the bad guys. So it's a really interesting show. I, I really like that show. And then the show Lie to Me has to do with like micro expressions and telling. Oh, that's cool. Is that on Netflix too? Uh, no, I think – I forget where I watched it the first time around, but okay. I don't think it's on Netflix, but also a good show if you find it on any of your favorite streaming sites. Um, but this one – so the reason that Criminal Minds led me to this is I was wondering, I was like, okay, so they came up with a shit ton of stories. Right. They must have pulled from, like, some real-life serial killers. Yeah. So one of the ones – um, I found while I was looking is about a man named Richard Kuklinski, who was an American murderer and hitman. Hmm. So Never heard he, of him. Yeah, he was actually, he died pretty recently, like in the last 20 years. Oh, okay. His like criminal, I guess, uh, career spanned over 30 years and mainly from like the 50s to the 80s. That's insane. That's a really long time. Yeah, especially with all the things he was involved in, I'm surprised he didn't get caught sooner. Yeah. So a little bit about Richard Kuklinski. He was born and raised in New Jersey, and he claims to have killed, he said in some interviews, he said 100, some interviews he said 200. Either way, a ridiculous number of people has claimed to killed over the span of 30 years. So he had connections with the mob or with mafia in New Jersey mm-hmm. and was claimed to be hired frequently by them to carry out murders. But he also had a pretty violent temper of his own. Okay. And so in a lot of his criminal business ventures that led to him offing some people that he worked with. Yeah. So a little bit about his early life, because a lot of serial killers, I guess this guy would definitely be considered a serial killer, um, even though he wasn't like killing for fun. He was killing for hire still. Uh, yeah. Killed a crap ton of people. Um, you know, they always have those hard family lives. Right. You hear about it's really sad. Um, so he was born April 11th, 1935, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, He was born to Stanley Kuklinski, who was a Polish immigrant who worked as a brakeman in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And his mother was Anna McNally, who was the daughter of Catholic Irish immigrants from Dublin. Okay. And was the second of four children. So growing up, uh, his father, Stanley, was an extremely violent alcoholic and he regularly beat his wife and their four children. Gross. Yeah, whenever 
their eldest child, Florian, was eight. He His father beat him so badly that he died of his injuries. Oh, my gosh. From that. And shortly after, uh, his father abandoned the family. I don't know if it was out of guilt or what, but he just kind of disappeared from their life. Wait, so so he got away with murdering his son? Yeah, it was really messed up. Apparently, they told police that he fell down the stairs and he somehow got away with it. Wow. So, what a really trash, unfortunate. Trash human. I know. It was in one of the interviews that uh, Richard did. There was some like HBO, some networks that interviewed him when mm-hmm. he was in prison. Um, he claimed that he regrets not killing his father back then. Yeah. Which is kind of dark for him to say like imagine as a child killing your own father right guy guy kind of deserved it yeah when you kill your own yeah when you kill your own kid like you deserve nothing and then to make matters even worse he just dipped after right i mean so probably a good thing for the family yeah unfortunately he didn't stay away for long uh they said that he intermittently would come back whenever he had been drinking a lot, come back to the family's home and beat on Richard and his siblings and his mother again. Hmm. So he kind of, he just abandoned them for everything and then would come back drunk and wow. and beat on his family. That's awful. So he had a really traumatic childhood. And then on top of that, his mom wasn't much better, uh, even though she did better than their father because she actually stuck around to raise the kids but she was brought up in a really strict religious catholic home Mm -hmm. and so she believed in like strict child raising and punishment so she was also prone to violent behavior and would beat her kids as well as a form of punishment wow there was um a time that he recalled that she was hitting him with a broomstick and she hit him so hard that the broomstick snapped in half. Wow. And then there was another time that he said she attempted to kill his father with a kitchen knife when he was on one of his drunken rampages. Yeah. So both parents really not suitable for raising kids. Right. So even though she believed in all that strict punishment, she also believed in raising them in the Roman Catholic Church. So that's the way she raised her kids. Uh, Richard ended up being an altar boy at their church. But later in life, he rejected Catholicism, uh, probably because of just the way it causes mother to treat him or her beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, probably like he saw that how his mom turned out, you know, because of religion and stuff. Yeah, so he... Well, I wouldn't say he didn't want to turn out the same way because he did, but right. neither here nor there. Um, so also when he was younger, he exhibited a lot of behaviors that you see in serial killers, kind of a common trend that's been identified, which is cruelty to animals. Oh, that's the worst. Uh, I know. That's it's the worst trend. Yeah, it's the first... I guess, instance of seeing how a killer lacks empathy for other living things and the pain of other living things. Yeah. 
it was said that he would kill the neighborhood cats by tying them together with rope by their tails. Oh. And then he threw them over a clothesline and watched them tear each other apart. No. While they were hanging from this clothesline. That is fucking, like, creatively awful. Right? Who thinks of that? I have no idea. But. Jesus. God, and even worse, he would take cats and also throw them into basement incinerators and just watch them as they died to the fire inside. So he did not care about any other living thing. So that kind of displayed in his younger years. So apart from his older brother that died back when he was younger, he also had a younger sister, Roberta, who there wasn't much about her. So hopefully she ended up normal. Yeah. Uh, but And then he also had a younger brother named Joseph, who there was a little bit more information about. Um, apparently he was in 1970, he was convicted of raping a 12-year-old girl and then murdered her by throwing her off of a five-story building. Yikes. Wait, so this is his brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his younger brother. Oh my gosh. This family is just... Right. Richard, there's a quote from Richard that says, quote, we come from the same father, end quote. Yeah. Beautiful. And he was asked about his brother. Ugh, gross. So he's kind of saying, you know, like, look at who our dad was. It's not surprising how we turned out. Right. Like, that's no excuse, obviously, but like right. nature versus nurture, you wonder like how they would be if they had like a loving family. Right. Yeah. So they did just didn't get off to a good start. And that kind of upbringing kind of showed itself in his own uh, marriage and adult life. So he was married twice. His first marriage was to a woman named Linda, and they had two sons, Richard Jr. and David. And while they were married, Richard was working at a trucking company as a driver. And while he was on the job there, he met a woman named Barbara, who was working as a secretary, and ended up divorcing his wife, Linda, and marrying Barbara in 1961. And then the two of them had three kids, Merrick and Kristen were their two daughters, mm-hmm. and then a son named Dwayne. So he All right. kind of sucked for yeah. <laughs> um, ditching his first wife and marrying this other woman and his two kids, but dude ended up with five kids somehow. Um, his wife Barbara described him as having this kind of dual personality one side she would call good Richie which was characterized by you know him being a loving father and husband and super hardworking, and he would you know provide for his family buy mm-hmm. them nice clothes jewelry um, he took them to nice vacations and restaurants and he always had like the nicest, newest car. So kind of like just a stereotypical, successful businessman taking care of his family. But then she said that on the flip side, there'd be bad Richie, which she characterized as a man that had uncontrollable and unpredictable fits of rage, followed by domestic violence, um, mainly physical violence against his wife, and emotional abuse uh, of his children. Jeez, man, if you have to 
label your husband or significant other good their name and bad their name like that should be a huge red flag yeah and she said that uh bad richie wouldn't show up too often so maybe that's why she kind of accepted it because good richie was so good but yeah there was a time that he got so violent that he broke her nose and gave her black eyes and one of the worst things so he never physically abused his children but there was a story that one of his daughters Merrick got home late one night Mm -hmm. and he as punishment he killed her dog right in front of her my god no yeah so yeah that god i can't even imagine yeah so bad richie was bad definitely not someone i would put up with for absolutely not clothes and jewelry and whatever just not worth it yeah no yeah so i guess his family was kind of oblivious to all of his criminal activity because while he was married to barbara he started making more money for himself and they just always thought that he was a successful businessman Mm -hmm. didn't really ask questions Uh, But over time, he got into quite a few different illegal activities, like businesses, I guess. Yeah. So one of the things he would buy and sell stolen goods, Um, he led a burglary and car theft ring that specialized in stealing brand new Corvettes. So that was one of his big moneymakers. I guess they just, he just had a gang of guys that would go niche corvettes yeah (laughs) niche business Um, model only only stealing corvettes yeah um then he also dealt narcotics he he illegally copied and distributed pornography videos um he dealt in weapons buying and selling those and money laundering okay so a jack of all trades right yeah, so whenever I was saying earlier, I'm surprised he hasn't gotten caught earlier than he did. Yeah. Like, he was he was involved in so many different things yeah. that I'm surprised he was able to be out there and do all this crap for 30 years. Yeah, that's insane. And that doesn't even include his hitman for hire side gig, wow. which he just called his side gig to supplement his income. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So guy just did it all yeah but before all that his first murder he described was actually back in 1949 when he was only 13 or 14 years old and he said there was this boy in his neighborhood that used to bully him all the time and so I guess one day he had enough and he took the clothes hanging rod from his closet Mm -hmm. and used it to beat this boy to death Oh my God. That used to bully him. Jesus. So he said he, you know, beat him and he ran back home right after. And pretty soon after it happened, the boy was discovered, but the crime was never traced back to him. Wow. So one of his first experiences in violence and murder, you know, on top of animal cruelty that he did when he was younger. But that was his first murder. Do you know if that was, like, before the animal cruelty, during, or, like, after? Um, Since he was 13 or 14, it didn't say when the animal cruelty happened. I'd yeah. guess probably 
he like started with animal cruelty because that's right you know kind of the gateway in and then murdered this boy since he was still an adolescent at the time you know probably still in school yeah living at home i'm guessing he probably still performed those acts of animal cruelty after yeah that sucks yeah so messed up i can't imagine at 13 or 14 right beating somebody beating somebody to death with a clothes rod yeah and i guess he was just he was probably super desensitized to violence having known nothing else and growing up in that kind of environment right all his life so it was just a way he saw of handling something yeah so messed up kid murdered somebody 13 14 years old and by the mid-1950s he was a bit older in his 20s mm-hmm. he gained this reputation as being somebody that would beat or kill anyone who annoyed him wow I'm guessing there were maybe some more in there that we don't know about. Yeah. Because he did claim to kill at least over 100 people. Most of them are undocumented. Most of them, you know, he just claims. Yeah. But I'm sure there was a lot in that time. Um, So then as he grew a little older, by the mid-1960s, so this was after he had married Barbara. So he had his first marriage to Linda, married Barbara, and then... Um, switched careers and started working at a Manhattan film lab where he had access to the master copies of a bunch of popular films. Mm -hmm. And so he got this idea to take those, make illegal copies, and then sell them to people. Another another side hustle. Yeah. So this was kind of his like gateway into that kind of world. Okay. Um, So once he did that for a while, he also realized that there was a high demand for pornographic films. So he started distributing those as well. And it said one of the one of the types of films that he distributed were Disney cartoons. So I just thought it was kind of funny. He's like, <laughs> okay, would you like The Little Mermaid or just porno? <laughs> <laughs> no in between, just one or the other. Right, or both. You can have both. <laughs> Oh God! He does it all, <laughs> but I just I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he's got that hustle going on, and then you know that gang of Corvette stealers. <laughs> the gang of Corvette stealers. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> that's when that also started up. So he, you know, dipped his toe with the illegal movies. Not too bad, you know hurting some major corporations. Um, then he started stealing cars and he was like the head and he had a bunch of guys under him that he would send out oh, okay. to do all the dirty work. So he was never on the front lines or anything. Yeah. And it was said that during this time, the only crime he was ever convicted of before he was convicted of murder in the 70s was writing a bad check Hmm. which seems like kind of a dumb thing to get caught for yeah when you're doing all this stuff like why would you write a bad check when you know that you have so much other illegal stuff going on that can be found out if someone's investigating you yeah (laughs) but anyway that got his like photograph and his prints into the system okay so to be a little bit more careful after that point yeah but yeah he wasn't ever convicted of any of that for a while okay side note but 
when yeah. you talk about him being like the head of these these like crime groups or whatever, and mm-hmm. so he had all these people underneath him, um, like organiz- crime organizations like that are literally just like pyramid schemes or multi-level oh, marketing yeah. schemes where like <laughs> you're the head person and then like you get so much money but you have to like get all your other little minions to sell your things or in this case steal your things and they get a little yeah. bit of it but you get more of it and then they have more so it's basically like an MLM for crime right yeah because you those little guys get more little guys they pay a little bit yeah less of what they're getting to go do the thing and yeah just a big everything's a pyramid <laughs> scheme it is <laughs> definitely um so I guess stealing Corvettes wasn't making him enough money at this point and selling illegal movies. So he decided to supplement his income by working as a freelance contract killer. Oh, okay. Now I'm not sure where you get started with something like that. Casual. But yeah, <laughs> I think it mentioned that he did a lot of work for the mob. So maybe in his other activities, he... Yeah got a connection there and then when he wanted to be a murderer for hire they knew about him Mm -hmm. and kind of trusted him because they dealt with him in the past so he did a lot of work for the mob it's all about who you know right it's all about those connections you try to get a job you gotta have connections right whether it's an office job or a killer He also, on top of having connections, he also had a mentor to help him, I guess, expand his skill set when it oh. came to murdering people. Okay. So his mentor was Robert Prong, who was another killer for hire that he got in contact with. Mm-hmm. And Prong's big thing was using cyanide as a murder weapon, mainly because it's a lot less traceable sometimes doesn't even look like a murder especially with like the technology that they had back then yeah so they apparently they worked together on quite a few murders because one of the ways that they would use cyanide is you can either put it in someone's food and Mm -hmm. when they ingest it it'll kill them or they also said that they put cyanide in spray bottles and they were able to spray it on their victims and kill them as well. Like if they sprayed them in the face. Yeah. Which I thought was, I don't know. That just seems so much more personal to go up to somebody and like look right? them in the face, spray them like that, and then just watch them die from poison. Do you want to know a fun fact about cyanide? Yes. So a way that um, people can like figure out that they were killed by cyanide is because it gives off like a like an almondy smell. Oh, interesting. But I guess not everyone can smell it, but some people can. I feel like almond isn't, it isn't a very strong scent itself. So yeah, I imagine people don't recognize it. (laughs) Well, the way I imagine it is smelling like amaretto, but I know that's probably not true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. So, okay. Yeah. So if something that you're about to eat smells like almond and it shouldn't now you know yeah don't eat it (laughs) hopefully you're not getting poisoned by cyanide that's messed up um but yeah this so that was robert's weapon of choice so they collaborated on some hits and cyanided some people really messed up yeah um one of the guys that they got his name was 
uh, Louis McGay. And whenever they killed him, they actually, or well, Prong came up with this idea of trying to freeze his body so that they could see if they could disguise the time of death from the coroner. Okay. So they froze the guy up and tried to see what they could do. Um, It ended up, whenever the body was eventually found, apparently they didn't thaw him out all the way. Mm -hmm. So the, and then also they wrapped him in garbage bags. So that kind of kept it insulated enough where the, I guess, ice crystals stayed in his body. And so the coroner was able to tell that they had, they had frozen him, but said that if they had let him thaw out completely, that the trick might've worked to disguise the time of death. So that's interesting. Fun little murder experiment that they performed. (laughs) Just a fun little murder experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ton of those. Um, But yeah, their time together ended kind of poorly or actually very poorly. Yeah. Um, Prong asked Kuklinski to murder his ex-wife and son at one point. He tried to hire him to kill his family pretty much. But um, Kuklinski refused because, you know, it's messed up. I guess he draws the line there. Who You know, I don't know where else he draws the line, but apparently right there. (laughs) And (laughs) so Prong got all pissed off and threatened to kill Kuklinski and his family. Mm Mm-hmm. So, of course, he isn't going to be too happy about that. And the police actually found Prong dead in his car with two bullet wounds to the chest. Oh, I mean, I I guess he had to kill him first. Yeah, he did not take kindly to his family being threatened. So uh, Kuklinski was the prime suspect in the case. But by the time they were investigating Prong's death, he was already convicted for a bunch of other murders so they decided not to press charges okay i mean this guy was also a murderer so they're like yeah yeah we're better off without him anyways right so that was just one of the guys he came into contact with that ended up dead um the few that we know about were the ones that they were brought up in his sentencing so i'm gonna go through some of those okay um the first one is his name was George Maliband, and he was an associate of Kuklinski in the burglary ring. And they were driving in a van to New Jersey, and they got into some sort of argument, and apparently Maliband threatened Kuklinski's family. So Kuklinski just pulled the car, pulled the van over, pulled out a revolver, and shot him five times. Wow. So... Guy had a big temper and a short fuse. Yeah. And it, it sounds like especially when it comes to his family. Right. Like, he's not going to accept any of that. Which is, seems kind of surprising. Yeah. I guess he didn't have a family that protected and loved him or a father that protected and loved him. So maybe yeah. he wanted to do better for his kids. Yeah. And, you know, you could say maybe that's why he got into organized crime in the first place to try to make good money for them give them a nice life he just happened to have some unredeeming qualities due to his upbringing right so anyways poor george um his body was found a few days later stuffed inside a 55 gallon barrel and in case you're wondering how you need what you need to do in order to stuff a grown man into a barrel 
Um, apparently, you have to cut the tendons in their legs in order to get them to fold up in there. Uh, just what I wanted to uh, imagine, <laughs> picture in my head, cutting the tendons in someone's leg to fit them in a barrel. Isn't that a nice, nice visual? <laughs> Man. So, yeah. So he stuffed him in there and then rolled him to the bottom of this ditch by the Chemitex chemical plant in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And that's how the police found him. It's in that barrel. Gross. Um, then continuing on with that theme, I guess there were a bunch of barrels laying around that he had access to. Uh-huh. Uh, cause Poor Paul Hoffman, he was a 50-year-old pharmacist who wanted to buy large quantities of Tagamet from Kuklinski, which was a popular drug at the time used to treat peptic ulcers. And then he was going to buy low from him since it was stolen and then sell it for a higher price at his pharmacy. Okay. Um, so on April 29th, 1982, Hoffman planned to meet Kuklinski to execute the deal Mm -hmm. so he brought $25,000 cash to purchase the drugs from him yeah and you know gave him the money but then Kuklinski was like psych this isn't happening and ended up killing Paul Hoffman poor guy just trying to make an extra buck at his pharmacy (laughs) yeah so apparently he he got his pistol and put it up underneath Hoffman's chin and shot him but that only wounded him he didn't what die from that shot i don't know how but then you know since that didn't work tried to shoot him again but his gun jammed so kuklinski resorted to finishing the job with a tire iron so he beat that guy to death so similar to poor george maliband paul hoffman was also stuffed inside a big barrel uh, this time it was a 50-gallon barrel. And then he decided this time to fill it up with instant cement oh. to cover the body. Gross. So that was – there was another um, episode in Criminal Minds where the criminal did that. Mm-hmm. Like they put their victims in these drums and then filled it with cement. Um, anyways. That's so, a heavy drum. <laughs> yeah, so – Apparently, whenever he did that, he just left it on the sidewalk outside of this motel that he was near at the time. And he said that he would go back every day and, like, check on the barrel, see if it was still there. And then one day, it just wasn't there anymore. But he didn't know what happened to it. Mm -hmm. And to this day, Hoffman's body was never found. So I'm, I'm guessing that whoever took the barrel probably just, like disposed of it somewhere because they thought it was just a barrel of cement but poor Hoffman was inside there oh no so his body was never recovered uh so then later that year the police kind of started getting close to catching Kuklinski uh they had been investigating him a little bit but one of his associates Percy House who was also a member of the burglary gang he ran, mm-hmm. agreed to testify and was placed in protective custody. So one of, some of the information that he gave to the police were the names of two other associates, one being Gary Smith, the other Daniel Deppner. Okay. And so knowing this, Kuklinski rented out a room in a motel for the two of them and told them to lay low, stay in there, 
so that they can't also be picked up mm-hmm. and questioned by the police. But Gary Smith disobeyed and left the motel room to go visit his daughter. But Kuklinski thought and feared that he was also wanting to become an informant for the police. So he decided that he had to die and decided to use the good old cyanide trick he learned from his old mentor. Oh, man. So they fed him a hamburger laced with cyanide. And apparently it was taking too long. So Kuklinski (sighs) decided to strangle him with a lamp cord instead. Wow. Not a patient man. Not at all. (laughs) And later the coroner said that if it wasn't for the ligature marks on Gary Smith's neck, Mm -hmm. then they would have thought that it wasn't a murder and it was actually just a death by natural causes. Right. Because they wouldn't have been able to detect the cyanide. But because of that, because he was so impatient, decided to kill him himself even faster. Yeah. Um, That led them to believe that it was a murder. So it was traceable back to Kuklinski. Yeah. And then it was only a matter of time before poor Daniel Deppner was also deemed to be a threat. So after he killed Gary Smith in that hotel room, he moved Deppner to an apartment that belonged to his daughter's fiance. And they weren't using it at the time. So he hid him out in there. But at some point, between February and May of 1983, Kuklinski killed Deppner. So later, after the fact, investigators found blood in the apartment that he was being kept in, but they, you know, they don't know the cause of death. Yeah. Because they just, uh, his body was found in May 1983 by a cyclist who was going through the woods mm-hmm. and he saw this turkey vulture eating the corpse. Yikes. So they don't really know what happened to him, but Kuklinski was the last guy or last person to see him alive and definitely had motive. Yeah. So, And imagine like just taking a stroll on a trail and coming across a body. That would be the most insane thing to happen. Yeah. I can't imagine how like how traumatizing that is for just a random person to see yeah you know like police officers they kind of have to be trained for that kind of thing but if you're just walking along not expecting to see anything that would be crazy i always assume that garbage bags on the side of the road are definitely filled with bodies (laughs) (laughs) i always assume (laughs) yeah i'm just like stay away from them you're like yeah nothing good's in there so yeah so those were some of the murders that he committed that were traced back to him Mm -hmm. and the ones brought up in his trial. So the lead detective on the case against Richard Kuklinski, his name was Pat Kane, and he was a detective at the time in the New Jersey State Police, and he was given a tip from an informant that connected Robert Kuklinski to all the burglaries happening in northern New Jersey. So from that point on, Kane decided to start keeping track of him and his movements and see if he could catch him in any illegal activity. Okay. So he started keeping track of him. And then as time went on, the five unsolved homicides that we went through mm-hmm. were all linked to Kuklinski because he was the last one to see each of them alive. Yeah. So in 1985, which was, see, 
what, about a year and a half after uh, Daniel Defner was found, mm-hmm. they created a task force of federal, state, and local law enforcement dedicated to arresting and convicting Richard Kuklinski. So he was big enough to bring together all levels of law enforcement to try to bring him down. Yeah, he had his own task force against yeah. him, which is good. <laughs> yeah, and they called themselves Operation Iceman. <laughs> Which is um, derived from poor Louis McGay, who was frozen. Yeah. And, you know, because they wanted to see if that would work. So they, yeah. that was one of his nicknames from... From his murder experiment. Yeah. Operation <laughs> Iceman. So it was led by Detective Kane and Special Agent Dominic Polifrone. And they worked with a guy named Phil Solomine, who was a close friend of Kuklinski. So they wanted to try to use him to get close to Richard mm-hmm. and get some confession out of him. Yeah. So Polifrone posed to Kuklinski as a fellow hitman, and he gave Kuklinski the job of killing a wealthy Jewish, Jewish associate in a cocaine deal robbery. And during this, he, of course, was wired up. And he recorded Kuklinski speaking in detail about how he would kill this man. Wow. And then also in this recording, he also boasted about all of his or some of his other murders Mm -hmm. and how he once killed a man by putting cyanide in his burger. Mm. So they were able to kind of connect that admission back to the murder of Gary Smith. Yeah. Uh, When the coroner looked at his body, he had a partially digested meal in his Mm -hmm. stomach which means that he probably died shortly after ingesting it yeah and then the contents some of the contents of his stomach were burned i think they said like beans or something so because it was burned they figured it wasn't from a restaurant and it was homemade so they kind of like connected the dots there to connect that to gary smith's murder yeah wow to think that burned beans can connect you to the killer. <laughs> you really messed up burning them beans. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he got a lot of confession out of him on that recording. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough to actually convict him at the time. Just because, you know, people can say a bunch of things. But they wanted to catch him actually about to commit a murder. Yeah. So... In December, on December 17th, 1986, Polifrone arranged to meet Kuklinski to give him the cyanide to kill um, the man he had requested him to. Mm-hmm. So I guess probably to, I don't know, make sure that the guy was legit, he had him provide the cyanide, which is probably illegal. And so he was, an, uh, what's it called? An accessory to the murder. Yeah just so he knew that the person was serious. Um, but after the meeting, Kuklinski took a walk, took his cyanide, and decided to test it on a stray dog that he found on the street. But he figured out that it wasn't poisonous because the dog didn't die. Oh, thank goodness. And he was super suspicious of that. So instead of going through with the murder as planned, he decided to just go home instead because he thought something was up yeah but a couple hours later he was arrested at a roadblock because they found a an illegal handgun in his car so 
didn't get him for the original thing, but got him for something else. Yeah. But while they were able to pick him up on that charge, they also were able to charge him with five counts of murder, six weapons violation, as well as attempted murder, robbery, and attempted robbery. And then on top of that, he also had a bunch of money in Swiss bank accounts and had recently booked a ticket Mm. over there. Always with the Swiss bank accounts. Yeah. You guys got to start getting creative. Put them somewhere else. Right. We all know about the Swiss bank accounts now. It's where all the criminals go. Exactly. Um, So they charged him with all that and had all their evidence lined up from Operation Iceman. But apparently one of the most damaging pieces of evidence were the recorded conversations. Uh, having Kuklinski basically incriminate himself yeah. with all that. Um, his defense attorney tried to kind of make light of it and be like, oh, he was just blowing smoke to try to impress this guy that he thought was a big criminal, you know? Mm-hmm. But jury wasn't buying it. And in March 1988, they found him guilty on two murder charges, uh, the murder of Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner, because those were, I guess, murders of his own doing there yeah. wasn't someone wasn't hiring him um and they found that the other deaths were not proven to be by kuklinski's own conduct so meaning that he like was hired didn't murder in cold blood or for whatever reason right um so he ended up avoiding the death penalty and then in the end he ended up pleading guilty to both of those murders so that he could avoid going to trial for the murder of george maliband and louis Masquey. Okay. Because he knew that it probably wasn't going to end up well for him if he didn't, if he went to trial for those two. So he avoided that by pleading guilty to those two. And his sentence was two 60-year terms, one for killing Smith and Defner. Yeah. And the other for killing Maliband and Masgay, and they would run concurrently. Good. So. So his whole life, the rest of his life is spent in prison. Yeah. Uh, But then in 2003, he received an additional 30-year sentence after confessing to the murder of a police officer named Peter Calibro, who was an NYPD detective who had been ambushed and shot dead in March 1980. Wow. So apparently this police officer might have been dirty. He had some connections to the mob. So I think that's how Kuklinski got into contact with him oh, okay but i think it was in one of his like interviews he did because while he was in prison a lot of like tv show networks and stuff did some interviews with him mm-hmm. kind of learn about his life and about his killings and all that so you know he's like i'm already in prison might as well right so he admitted to that and got 30 extra years tacked on there <laughs> um, apparently he would have only been eligible for parole uh, let's see, I think it was 2046, and he would have been 111 years old at that time. <gasps> so, no Mountain. chance of this guy getting out. Right. Uh, but, fortunately for him, a couple years later, in October 2005, after 18 years in prison, he was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, which is an inflammation of the blood vessels. Oh, okay. So this led to a lot of heart problems for him. Yeah. And 
Toward the end of his life, he was transferred to St. Francis Medical Center in New Jersey. And whenever he was in the hospital, he asked doctors to revive him if, you know, if he passed because he was at a high risk for cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. But good old former wife, Barbara, signed a do not resuscitate order. (laughs) Yes, Barbara. (laughs) And apparently a week before he died, the doctors actually tried to call her and ask if she wanted to rescind it. But she was like, no, we're going to keep that. And then he passed a week later at 70 years old of cardiac arrest. Barbara pulled through. Girl did. (laughs) You know, karma came for him. Yep. He went out early. Good. So he only lived. (laughs) 70 years old, but over half of his life was spent doing illegal activities and crime and murder. Yeah, that's insane. He's a messed up guy. Wow. Well, that was a that was a good one. That was a good story. Yeah. I'd never heard of him before. Yeah, so I think it's let me go back up my notes. Um Oh yeah. Okay, so season 1 episode 8. Okay. So if everyone wants to one. go watch that as well go watch it oh yeah i forgot to mention this part so the like the reason why they're guessing that they connected these two Mm -hmm. so in this episode they're hunting down vincent perota which is a mob hitman that had an abusive childhood so very similar to richard kuklinski Mm -hmm. and then he had some very gruesome ways of killing his victims that they displayed in this episode which was leaving a man to get eaten alive by rats, Ugh. which is just an awful way to die. Oh, God. I can't imagine. So that that's where the, I guess, inspiration for that Criminal Minds episode comes from. Apparently, he really did that, which is oh, wow. messed up. Creative, creative killer. Yeah, he's got a, way too many tactics. Yeah, he, he, thought, he thought hard about him. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was a good, that was a good story. I'll definitely have to check out the episode too. Yeah. Tell me if you start binge watching it, but maybe not binge watch. I would recommend like two, three episodes and then take like a a funny show break. Yeah. I have a hard time stopping shows if I start watching them. So it'll probably (laughs) turn into a binge. Oh man. Just be prepared. I used to binge uh, Law & Order SVU. Like I would watch it oh, for like okay. a full day. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good weekend show. Yeah, and those are those are tough episodes. So, right. I mean, yeah. Well, hope everyone, hope everyone's staying safe and healthy still. Hope you all are enjoying this episode. And um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, I will be bringing you guys a story next week. So stay tuned and. Check out our Instagram, Two Weirdos One Podcast, and DM us, message us, uh, send us an email if you want with any suggestions or stories. Uh, two Weirdos One Pod at gmail.com. So we like hearing from you guys. Yeah, shoot us a DM. Oh, yeah. And if you guys want to like review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be cool too. Get us those, you know, oh, yeah. get us those good ratings. If you're going to post a negative review, just you know, do like what your mother said. <laughs> if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. <laughs> we accept your criticism, but just don't mess with our stars, okay? Right. DM us. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.